Hi, I'm Conrad Marshall, and from the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, this is Good Weekend Talks, a magazine for your ears in which we take a deep dive into the definitive stories of the day. Every week you can download new episodes in which top journalists from across our newsrooms host conversations with the people capturing the imagination of Australia right now. This week, we speak with Professor Andrew Pask, head of the Tiger Lab, which is short for Thylacine Integrated Genomic Restoration Research at the University of Melbourne. Basically, he's the man trying to bring the Tasmanian tiger back to life. Pask leads a crack team of scientists using DNA from a pelt sample and genomes from thylacine relatives to build a new chromosome scale genome for the de-extinction of the Tassie tiger. The history of the thylacine, of course, is a sad one. Hunted to extinction by European settlers, who thought it was a threat to the Tasmanian sheep industry, the last known Tassie tiger died in captivity in 1936. The return of the animal, through a laboratory almost a century later, might sound like science fiction, but is actually a reality within reach thanks to researchers like Pask, who is named in the current issue of Good Weekend as one of our 52 newsmakers of 2022. And hosting this conversation, about everything from conservation to venture capitalism, is national science writer for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, Liam Mannix. Thanks, Conrad, and welcome, Andy. Thank you for having me. Andy, we'll get into the science of this in a sec and into colossal biosciences, who I think are crazy and fascinating in all Mm -hmm. the right ways. But really, I want to start this story in your office, which, for listeners is this little brown brick bolt hole uh, absolutely overflowing, Andy, with 2D Tasmanian tiger skulls and portraits. I remember going there and meeting you and looking around and thinking to myself, this is a man who is absolutely obsessed with the Tasmanian tiger. Is that true? And and how did you get bitten by this bug? It is because it is the the coolest marsupial that ever lived and probably the coolest animal that ever lived. So, you know, how could you not be bitten by that that bug? But yeah, I guess I fell in love with it because my my first foray into science in Australia was working on marsupial biology, trying to understand more about the incredibly unique set of animals that we have in this country. And I really loved all the different sorts of marsupials and trying to understand more about the the very different groups that we have. And so I was looking through, you know, and trying to figure out which ones I could and couldn't work on. And the one that I'd loved ever since I was a little kid was the Tasmanian tiger. And I just always had this huge desire to be like, I just wish we still had specimens that I could do some genetics on and still work with them. And so I'd always had this yearning to try and do anything with it. And then right around that time was when there was a huge explosion in the world about ancient DNA and people were looking to see if they could get DNA from fossil specimens, if they could sequence the Neanderthal genome, uh, the mammoth genome, projects like that. And I was reading all of these papers just thinking, surely we can do the Tasmanian tiger genome. So I reached out to the Melbourne Museum and uh, they gave me a tiny little bit of, of, of pelt, a bit of a skin from a Tasmanian tiger, and we did some DNA extractions. And sure enough, there was a lot of DNA there. It was broken up into a lot of little pieces, mm. which makes it more difficult to work with than DNA from a living animal. Mm. But it certainly gives you that basis that all of a sudden we could start to ask questions that I could have only dreamed of when I first started working in this area. Wow. And I think a lot of scientists would have looked at that and go, great, I'm going to study this creature. You looked at it and went, I want to bring him back from the dead. 
Well, of course, right? Like, again, it's this absolutely unbelievable animal. And, again, it was one of those things that, you know, you always go, like, it would be incredible if we could do this. My first experiment was just going, okay, so we we knew that we could isolate DNA, we could sequence DNA. So that gives us sort of that blueprint set of instructions of how to build your Tasmanian tiger. So I saw that we could get that information. But then I was going, okay, I want to be able to take it to the next level. Could we actually get that DNA to function or work? Mm. And so the experiment I did, you know, this was 20 years ago, was I took one piece of that DNA and I put it into a mouse Mm. and just asked, could I make that piece of DNA functional again? And the experiment worked. And we got this incredible mouse where you could see that, that Tasmanian tiger gene being expressed or being produced all over this mouse embryo. And then that was it. I was like, well, if you can do it for one gene, it's a matter of scale. The scale Mm. being many billions of times over to build the entire genome. But I'm like, if you can do it for one bit, we can do it for the whole thing. So, you know, of course we didn't have the technology back then to do it, Mm. but fast forward to today... And we do have that technology now. And so, of course, it's it's a key thing I want to pursue. Bringing the Tasmanian tiger back is going to require a lot of money, right? And yes. And this is not the sort of thing that a government funder is going to come to you and say, yep, go for it, Andy. Exactly. So I've been working on this for many years, mm. but really working on the project from the angle of all of the tools and things that we need for marsupial conservation projects. So mm. this is something I'm enormously passionate about. Australia has the highest rate of mammal extinctions of any country in the world. Mm. A lot of those are our really vulnerable marsupial species. We know that we're going to experience more adverse weather events, so more bushfires in particular. They're a real risk for for, um, marsupials, uh, especially because we're seeing rising rates of global temperatures. Mm. And so these are real concerns that we have, is that we're going to lose this incredible biodiversity that we have in Australia. Mm. So we've been working for a long time on the tools that we need to protect those animals. And these are the same tools that we need to bring back the Tasmanian tiger. So it's a really beautiful marriage of those projects that we can develop really amazing new technology and apply it for conservation right now, as well as bringing back the Tasmanian tiger, which I'm sure we'll get to soon, uh, which plays a critical role in conservation itself. So it it is the ultimate conservationist, if you like, in terms of it can regulate uh, species in an ecosystem in a way that we can't even imagine as humans Mm. or manage. um, So it can do that as well. So these are all conservation projects, really. So in March this year, I was on parental leave and I was reading the newspaper and there were you with your first $5 million from a private donor taking your first step towards bring the tiger back. And I thought to myself, $5 million, that's a fair bit. Andy's going to be able to create a real nuisance for himself here. And then I came back and you sent me a text and you said something has happened, and I'm reading this here, that will make this more possible than ever before. A company called Colossal Biosciences, who I'd never heard of, are giving me another 10 million. 15 million bucks, which is crazy money in Australian science. Tell me a bit about Colossal and how that came about. Firstly, I'm the luckiest scientist in this whole country, right? Like being able to do this project, save marsupials, potentially bring back the Tasmanian tiger. Unbelievable. I just pinch myself every single day to be able to get this. And that people are so behind these projects is just absolutely phenomenal. But yeah, it was amazing. So we had the 5 million. We did a big press release, which you were part of. Thank you very much. You know, obviously it went globally. People got really excited about the project, got the phone call from Colossal, and they're really interested in de-extinction. Now, can you tell people who Colossal are? 
are. Yeah, Colossal mm. Biosciences are a huge uh, company, biotech company in the US, mm. whose primary objective was bringing back the mammoth. Mm. It's now bringing back the mammoth and the thylacine, <laughs> and uh, I'm sure they're going to announce some other um, animals as well that they would like to de-extinct. And, and the mammoth is kind of the pet project of this guy called George Church, right? Correct. And when I saw his name, I was like, oh, these guys are serious. Yeah, so George Church is, is probably the number one geneticist in the, on the planet. He's mm. absolutely brilliant. He's a professor at Harvard University. Mm. So, you know, we're talking the brightest minds in science applying themselves to exactly, you know, this, this project of trying to bring animals back. Father of the Human Genome Project. Father of the Human Genome Project, mm. a pioneering gene engineering technologies, mm. you know, beyond what anybody thought was possible. If somebody's going to do crazy... It's going to be George. It's going to be George. Mm. And he's going to make it work mm. and it will be, you know, profoundly life-changing for everybody. So he is the guy. So Colossal come to you. They say, we've got George Church. Here's another $10 million. Yep. Now, Colossal, they're not just a, a conservative science funder, are they? They're a venture cap and yep. they're in this for their own reasons. Yeah, so they've already spun out a technology company um, called FormBio, which has got a, a whole bunch of new tools for how you take genomes like extinct DNA and you can computationally analyse them. These are very complicated things that you need to break down interesting parts of a genome, less interesting parts of a genome. They use this technology to look at our own DNA to figure out genes that might be um, causing diseases and things. So their whole idea for them, I think, is to create multiple spin-outs. It's sort of like the, the moon landing project, right, where yeah. you shoot for the moon and it's all the technologies that you develop along the way have enormous potential. Mm. One of the other big things they're really keen on developing is this ability to grow an embryo outside of a womb. Mm. So rather than having a surrogate mum to produce something, you can produce a, an artificial womb that you can raise animals in and that has enormous uh, health potential for humans, mm. particularly for preterm birth, would mm. be incredible if we could, you know, put babies into a system where they could be gestated for even just a few more weeks mm. for some of those really early born babies. But also for things like producing livestock to feed the, the expanding population of the world, all of those sorts of mass applications that you could use an artificial womb for are huge, as well as bringing animals back from the dead and helping with conservation. While I was reporting this story, Andy, I looked into Colossal and I discovered that when they were promoting your science, they had paid a whole bunch of social media influencers, including a Bachelorette contestant, to tweet and promote this project uh, on Instagram and on Facebook and on Twitter. That's not normal science behaviour, really. Is it? So no, it, so it's quite different, I guess, from how mm. I've always operated within our world. But it's so interesting when mm. you talk to them. And, you know, the, the founder of Colossal, his name's Ben Lamb, he's just, he was, he grew up in a, you know, sort of a rural setting. He didn't have a lot of access to science and science education. Mm. And he said, you know, it's the kids today who are on Instagram, they're on TikTok, they're on Twitter. And that is how they're engaging with the world. Mm. And he's like, we really want to make sure that we can reach everybody with the kind of science that we're doing. He really wants to inspire that next generation of people to get excited and behind what Colossal are doing mm. and the importance of preserving biodiversity. I think when you go to their website, you know, and all the things that they do, they have real messages about how this is going to help with the, you know, saving biodiversity on the planet, the next mass extinction event that we're currently in the middle of mm. and why these technologies are really important. So I think it's a really interesting way to reach a much larger audience. And certainly for me with my research, I mean, it's it's been 
just completely life-changing. Like I'm constantly doing interviews across the world now because so many people are really aware of the research that's happening. Mm. And I think perhaps on reflection, it's something we don't do well enough in science is really engage the community and that age bracket to go, mm. actually, this your generation that are going to be impacted the most by this. You know, this is going to be when we'll have to be making decisions all the time about what animals we want to bring back, what animals we're going to leave extinct, what species we want to save, how we might need to engineer animals to survive climate change and things like that. So I think it's great that they're kind of getting that exposure very early to think about these problems because it will impact their lives. I I do find that a compelling argument. I mean, reporting out this story, there were a lot of older, more conservative science types who were like, what do you mean we shouldn't be promoting this? And there was almost a vibe of, we shouldn't be talking to the public about science. Science should be for scientists. And I do see your argument there that there is some value in bringing people along because I think people are going to need to be brought along this project if you really want to release these tigers into the wild. That's the whole thing, and that's where he's coming from. Ben always talks about this, is eventually it's going to be up to the public to decide what's going to happen with these animals. And mm. if we're not touching and getting into you know those people, and we know that influences of things is how you make things happen in today's mm. world. It reaches an audience that we would never have the opportunity to get to, mm. to start really thinking thoughtfully about what they might want to do with these animals. Do they want them? How, you know, and really understanding, because I think it's really interesting because I talk to a lot of conservation groups. I talk to a lot of scientists and Mm. I would say in most conservation type meetings, 80% of the people would come to a lecture for me, Mm. coming in the room going, this is terrible. We shouldn't be bringing animals back and we shouldn't be engineering animals to survive. Mm. And then I I really believe by the end of it, when I've told them exactly what the reasons are, I think 80% of people at least come up to me after and go, I was really sceptical but I really understand why we have to do this and that it's really important work. So, And I always go, I just want people to give us the benefit of the doubt, not Mm. go, we shouldn't be doing this, but listen to the arguments for and then think about what we can do and how we can achieve it moving forward because we will lose marsupials if we don't step in to do things. We know that absolutely Mm. unequivocally. And the thylacine could do an astounding job of helping preserve all of those species that are left in Tasmania. And they're probably going to go the way of the Tasmanian devil, which have got a terrible disease that nearly wiped it out, if we aren't able to restore the balance in that ecosystem. Mm. All right, so let's get down to chalk and cheese here, Andy. All of this talk is only good and well if you can actually bring a Tasmanian tiger back from the dead. Can you step our listeners through the science gates to making this possible? Yeah, so we still can't create life where there is none. So we can't walk into the museum and reanimate a a thylacine, although that would be a lot easier. Uh, I would also dispel for the listeners, there are no living ones out there, despite what you may have heard. I have uh, We're going to get so many people writing in, Andy. (laughs) So what people would do is collect scat specimens, I've told you this before, right, from where they thought thylacines were, but in very Variably, it's it's dog poo or uh, Tasmanian devil poo, which are also carnivores. So and they send you unpleasant. the dog poo. And then they put it in a Ziploc bag <laughs> and they send it to me and I, I do a DNA test to see if it's thylacine and it's not. And I've done thousands of poos now and I've drawn the line. I'm like, they're not there. No more poo. No more poo. Stop sending yeah, any Please poo. don't send me poo. Okay, so yeah. <laughs> so well, they're, they're not out there. So what we have to do is we have to start with something living. So we can't create that life where there is none. So the way that de-extinction science works 
and this is for any species, mm. is that you identify the closest living relative to the animal that went extinct. And in our case, it's a little mouse-sized marsupial called the fat-tailed dullard. Really cute little guy. Um, and it's the closest living relative. So then what we do is we sequence its genome, its set of, of blueprints or its, its set of instructions. Mm. We sequence the genome of our extinct animal, our Tasmanian tiger, which we have an exceptionally good genome for. That's mm. one of the great things about our museum collections is they've preserved these specimens beautifully so we can get that complete genome. And then we compare the two. And in most species, they're really similar. We're talking like, you know, 90% identical, if not 95% identical. And then there's that bit of difference. And so what we have to do then is go in and edit each place where the Dunnart genome is different from the Tasmanian tiger genome. So mm. we're just making all of those changes. So just to clarify, you're editing the Dunnart genome? Editing the Dunnart in mm. living Dunnart cells to now turn it into a Tasmanian tiger genome. Mm -hmm. So that's the biggest part and the biggest hurdle of this project mm. is making all of those edits because it is millions of edits that need to be done. So that will take a long time. Mm. That's the time-consuming part. Once you've got it, we can then take that cell and just using standard cloning techniques like we use for livestock, for humans, uh, for multiple other species, sort of IVF and cloning, you can turn that cell then back into a whole living animal. Now, we don't have that perfected yet for marsupials. That's one of the other things that we're working on. Now, hang on. Mm. I need to butt in here. So yep. you take a Dunnart cell, edit the genome into essentially a Tasmanian tiger genome, yep. but then you still need to put that cell in a womb, right? Well... So we've got two ways of doing this. One is with the surrogacy. Mm. So we would put it into a Dunnart mm. in this case. Uh, or you have the artificial womb technology where you can put it into a system where you have to grow it. So we're working mm. on both of those in parallel. You might be thinking, hang on a second, you just told me the Dunnart is the size of a mouse. Right, and we're talking about a Tasmanian tiger, yes. which is about the size of a Labrador. Mm. Uh, but one of the amazing things about marsupials is they all give birth to really, really tiny babies. So mm. both the Dunnart and the Tasmanian tiger baby mm. is about the size of a grain of rice at birth. So really small. And so a Dunnart can certainly give birth to a Tasmanian tiger amazingly. And then it would be able to probably live in the mother's pouch for about two, three weeks, we think. We've mm. looked at how they grew um, and we think it'll probably outgrow mum in about three weeks' time. And then you can hand rear it because it's, you know, basically a baby that you can wow. bottle feed. We do actually know a lot about the milk composition and how to hand rear orphaned marsupials. Mm. And so there is the possibility of doing that as well. So we could either grow it outside or we can use even a tiny, tiny mouse size Peel as a surrogate mum. Wow. So to sum up, assemble a complete genome, insert into a Dunnart cell, guide the Dunnart cell to fetus and then to birth. Yes, correct. Okay, so I took this plan to some independent scientists. Yeah. And I think it's fair to say that they were extremely sceptical. Some, and this surprised me, were even quite angry that you're even attempting this project. So let's run through a few of the issues that they raise about the science, and you can tell me what you think. Yep. First, the genome, which is the crucial step here, right? You need this thing. You've got to have a really good genome. What percentage have you got now? So we sequenced the entire genome, which mm. means we have 
all of it, the mm. entire genome, 100%. Mm-hmm. But it's the putting those bits back together again to mm. build how they all fit together. So you're talking about a puzzle here mm. and you've got lots of little puzzle pieces and you've got to rebuild the puzzle. So we've got all the bits of the puzzle. We've put probably 95 to 98% of it back together. Mm. The bits that we can't put back together is where we have repeats. So that's like the same bit of code over and over and over and over again. Mm. And they're very hard to put back together because it's like doing a puzzle that looks like where they're all baked beans or, you know, they're all hundreds mm. and thousands or blue sky or one of those awful puzzles that you see. It's like that, where you don't know where the bits fit together because they all look exactly the same. And this is about 150 million baked beans that you have. Yes, quite yes, got. it's a lot. It's yeah. a lot of baked beans to put back together again. Mm. So it's really complicated. But those bits of the genome, we don't think really do a lot. But nobody's created an entire genome mm. with those bits missing to know. So that's one of the things we will figure out. And if we have to go in and engineer them, we can. Mm. And we can do a lot more sequencing to fill that gap, to actually put that whole 100% genome back together again. It's just a really expensive endeavour to do it. But mm. now we have the money to do this. So this is one of the things we're proposing is to actually get to that 100% built genome. Okay. And the done art that you're using, not just a mouse compared to a Labrador, but yep. you described it as the nearest common ancestor. 30 million years of evolution away, right? Like the thylacine yep. is quite evolutionarily isolated. Yep. Is that golf going to prove a big problem? Because a lot of scientists think that it might. Yeah, so, I mean, that's one of the biggest things, as I said before. It's the genome editing that's really going to take the time. Mm. And so we definitely have all the tools to go through and do this. It's not an impossible task. It Mm. just is going to take, you know, we're talking millions of edits. And at the moment with the technology, you can maybe do 50 or so edits at once, and then you have to check that everything's gone okay, and Mm. then you can do the next batch of 50. But you can imagine for that number... For 150 million baked beans. Right. But we have an army of people working on this, right? Mm. So this is where it becomes a, a, a job of scale. Mm. So you have to have, a, you know, unthinkable amounts of a people time dedicated to this one project. And so they're doing this for the mammoths. So there's a lot of people really trying to perfect how quickly we can do this, how reliable we can make the edits to get there quicker. But the other big technology that's come hugely forward in the last 10 years mm. is making artificial DNA. So we do this all the time now where you can synthesise hundreds of thousands or even millions of bases of DNA mm. artificially. And then once we get better at that technology, this really becomes a much, much more simple problem. So we won't be editing the entire genome per se. We might artificially synthesise the majority of it and then just flip those bits into our done art cell. So you can take a big chunk of DNA, you can just recombine it, we call mm. it, where you just flip that bit of artificial DNA into the done art genome and it will replace that that part of the DNA. So I think that's probably going to be one of the key technologies in the next five to ten years that will change this yet again. Mm, to come back to George Church's human genome, project, yep. uh, one of the real advances that that made was in technology, wasn't it? We got the ability to quickly sequence a genome. Are you thinking that the same sort of thing will come out here in terms of technology to quickly make large-scale edits to a genome? Exactly, mm. and that's what George's mm. lab is completely focused on mm. now, is multiplexing or mm. doing many of these edits at the same time, because yeah. that's got real importance for, again, editing animals to survive climate change and other things, as well as human diseases. Well, even, this is so. the big thing here, isn't it? Like, if you guys can do these two then you're able to say, hey, we could do mass genome edits on lots of things. Exactly. Mm. It really does mean that you can do 
anything. I mean, if you can bring mm. a species back, editing living animals becomes a, is a much simpler task. Mm. And so it does open up a, a big field. Mm. And again, I think that's something that, you know, the public needs to be very aware of what mm. this might mean moving forward and how comfortable they are with gene-edited animals versus not. Because I think they have a place and they will in our world moving forward, but they shouldn't be everywhere. Well, let's get into that. Mm. So when I came and met you at your office, you and I were chatting... But there was also another scientist in the room, a man with a wonderful name, Dr. Stephen Frankenberg, <laughs> and he is working on a project that's very closely related to yours, right? Taking a living Australian animal and editing its genes and then releasing it into the wild. And, yeah. th and that's happening reasonably soon, right? Yeah, so this, this is sort of our ambassador project, if you like, for this. And this is the, the incredible story of the northern quoll. So it's this beautiful sort of cat-sized spotted gorgeous marsupial species and they are becoming extinct they're planned to be extinct in about the next 10 years because they eat cane toads and the cane toads are toxic and they mm. die cane toads are an introduced species here in Australia and so none of our animals have evolved resistance to this this terrible amphibian and they are everywhere these toads are absolutely if anybody's been to Queensland I mean you'll know they are just literally mm. all over the place mm. so they're such an abundant food source that you know eventually a quoll's going to eat one and just just die from the from the toxin but it's one gene in the genome that needs to be edited to make our animals resistant to cane toad toxin. And every mammal that lives where cane toads naturally exist in South America, they all have this resistance gene because they all eat cane toads mm. um, because they've evolved alongside them. But when you take a species and you put it into Australia, none of our animals have had a chance to evolve alongside it. They mm. just succumb to the toxin. So we can accelerate that process of evolution, if you like, by making this one edit. And then the amazing thing about this is not only then would the quoll survive because this is the, the primary issue is them eating the cane toads mm. but they would actually be able to control cane toad spread mm. by being able to eat this biological disaster which would be incredible so you get this double benefit of saving the, this this incredible species and having them help eat the problem you know that so many other marsupials and lizards and snakes are dying from eating these these toxic toads so you, it's an incredible project you said to me that you think we might have a thylacine in a decade but these yeah. genetically modified quolls they're going to be running around pretty soon. I think Stephen was talking about a couple of years, right? Yeah, we would hope in a few years right. we'll have this. So your project might sound blue sky in some ways, but genetically modified animals are coming and they're coming fast. People need, I think, to think about how they're going to feel about this because yeah. it's not going to be a blue sky problem for much longer. Now, Andy, I want to talk to you about another project that tried to bring back the thylacine. Mm -hmm. This is Michael Archer's team at the Australian Museum. In 1999, he announced to the world with great fanfare that he was going to bring back the Tasmanian tiger. He extracted DNA from a pickled pup that he had. He even told the age that uh, he had performed the biological equivalent of man walking on the moon. But by 2003, it was becoming clear the project was more hype than hope. They recovered just a few tiger genes and the project then collapsed. I guess what I'm saying, Andy Pask, is you're walking in the footsteps of high-profile failure. Why are you confident this time things will be different? Yeah, like that at that time, 23 years ago, we really didn't have the technology to do this. One mm. of the biggest things, I mean, we had, didn't, we've only barely had the human genome at that point, mm. which is mm. insane to think that we would be sequencing genomes of other species so quickly. Mm. Well, I think we sequenced the kangaroo genome probably about 10 years after that, which was an enormous feat for us to do back then. But mm. then, and that was really difficult to do, even when we have a full intact chromosome. So like, it's still enormously challenging. So uh, Mike Archer suggesting that he could do 
do it from tiny fragments in 1999 was visionary, but uh, we certainly didn't have the technology to do it. If you fast forward to today, we've got uh, supercomputers that do all of that genome assembly work for us. We have really specialised techniques for DNA sequencing, which are specifically adapted for sequencing um, specimens that have fragmented DNA. That was part of what George Church actually developed in this project. So he's been a pioneer of this for, for many, many years, driving this technology forward. And then the DNA editing technology. You know, in the past, we could edit our gene or maybe a small region of the genome, but it would take six months to a year to do one tiny edit. But then with CRISPR, which I'm sure many of the listeners would have heard about, but it's this new DNA editing technology that enabled us for the first time to really quickly make edits that are very reliable, which means it only edits the bit that you want it to and doesn't mess up anything else in the genome. And obviously, if you're trying to rebuild an animal, you have to be really careful about that. You don't want to mess anything else up. You've got It's got to be right. And so with those tools in hand, now we really do have all of the technology to do this. And there's no question in the next decade, you will be seeing de-extincted animals. Whether the thylacine's no one of the question. first ones or whether there's other species, wow. you will see it. So wow. they'll make a mammoth, um, and it may not be 100% mammoth, it may be 80% mammoth or 90% mammoth, but you will start to see these animals be born because all the tech is there. It's just a matter of crunching through, doing all the editing and then bringing those species back. Wow. Andy, what's your end game here? Are you going to own the world's first Tasmanian tiger as a pet. <laughs> well, there was actually the books on it. They said that they were the, probably the only domesticatable marsupial because kangaroos and other ones make rubbish pets. They're not really friendly. But the Tasmanian tiger actually had a much bigger brain than other ones. So there's the potential that people... I mean, Mike Archer said everybody would have them as pets. <laughs> he did. By, I think, 2010 or something. Right? We were all Where's my Tasmanian tiger, Mike? Would have made my job a lot easier. But, <laughs> but um, I think the end game for this is really to rewild these animals. This is really ultimately what all of these projects are about. And that's because they were an apex predator, which are these animals that sit right at the top of the food chain, and they play a fundamental role in stabilising ecosystems. And we know since we lost the Tasmanian tiger mm. that that ecosystem in Tasmania did become really destabilised. You do start to see all sorts of terrible things happening. So being able to create that animal and put it back into that place mm. is really critical. And this is why I'm a huge advocate for bringing back the Tasmanian tiger. Not everything, but the Tasmanian tiger, I think, it ticks all of my sort of moral... Uh, for bringing a species back, which is, you know, it's a recent extinction. Mm. Humans drove this animal to extinction. It wasn't going to go extinct. We brutally hunted and, and wiped this species out. Mm. The ecosystem for it still exists. So if we can bring an animal back, we have somewhere to put it tomorrow. The food it needs to eat to survive is there. Mm. The habitat it needed is still there. And we have an exceptionally good genome. So we know we can do a really good job of bringing this animal back. We're not going to bring back some Frankenstein monster. We actually can edit a full thylacine genome. So with all of those things in place, I think an animal like this is where it should be right at the top of our list for wanting to bring this species back. Andy, this has been a really fun chat, but there's a really sad story at the, the kernel of this tale, isn't there? We hunted this creature to extinction. The last member of its species died of the cold in a concrete cage in Hobart Zoo, and then we threw its body in the trash. I guess my question is, why shouldn't this animal be a marker of our hubris? Why do we deserve to bring it back? 
I, I, yeah, I think we really owe it if we have the technology to this species to bring it back. We did it such a horrible injustice. I mean, it was hunted because they said it was stealing sheep. That was really why it was persecuted and it never ate sheep. Mm. Everybody was stealing each other's sheep in Tasmania at the time and then blaming the, the Tasmanian tiger. So it's even worse, mm. you know, like it really wasn't mm. doing anything bad at all. And like you said, we just showed so little respect for this, this incredibly unique animal. There are no other species in marsupials like it. Mm. We have no other predators marsupials we have nothing that looked like it it was just so incredibly unique and we showed it no respect and I think for animals like that where they still have a place to go where we haven't destroyed their habitat if we can bring these animals back I think we really owe it to bring those species back even if it costs a lot of money I think it's it's something we wiped off the face of the earth that we had no right to and we should bring those animals back Andy Pask thank you so much for your time pleasure thank you for having me Good Weekend Talks is brought to you by the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Subscriptions power our newsrooms. To support independent journalism, search subscribe Sydney Morning Herald or The Age. If you'd like to know more about our list of 52 newsmakers of 2022, including everyone from soccer sensation Sam Kerr and punk rocker Amy Taylor, to Foreign Affairs Minister Penny Wong and sexologist Chantelle Otten, you can find a link to our list in the podcast show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe, rate and comment wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Good Weekend Talks is produced by Julia Carr-Katzel. Technical assistance from Cormac Lally. Editing from Conrad Marshall. Tom McKendrick is head of audio. And Katrina Strickland is the editor of Good Weekend.